0: The following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. I was interested to, to notice the uh, the focus from the start on joy this morning, because um, I actually want to share some thoughts on uh, enjoyable prayer. Sandra and I were on an extended ministry trip recently, and we, we found ourselves asking again and again, wherever we went, why do you think it is that as Christians um, our score is so low in prayer practice? In in, in prayer belief, we score pretty well. Uh, Is prayer good? Is it right? Is it important? Is it powerful? Should we pray? We tick all the boxes in uh, what we believe about prayer. But when it comes to practice, there seems to be this huge void between what we believe and what we practice. And we're interested to hear, and we got some interesting responses from people. Well... Um, The low prayer rating is because we're just too tired to pray. Uh, We're too busy to pray. Um, A few said prayer is too boring. It's not entertaining enough, someone said. A few said we can't pray, we kind of cancel that one out because thankfully um, God sent His Spirit to us to remove the cannot. And replace it with a can. He leaves the will not to us to replace with I will. So we can pray. But whether we do so or not, I think, you know, the issues of busyness and tiredness, it's amazing, you know, when that, that really good movie comes on or that favorite soapy or that game and suddenly the weariness and the busyness seems to not be there anymore. And, and so the issue of, of prayer uh, and where we rate it and how valuable it is to us, I think it's really a heart issue. When we lose the enjoyment of prayer, it tends to no longer be core in our lives. And that's true of anything. Anything we don't enjoy gets pushed out to the edges. So prayer that is not enjoyable becomes peripheral rather than core to life. And if it's not core to life, it will never be cutting edge in ministry. God is the guarantor of enjoyable prayer. He says in Isaiah 56 verse 7, he said, I will make them joyful in my house of prayer. So the problem is not with God. He's promised, he's guaranteed enjoyable prayer. And uh, and that didn't end with the passing of the Old Testament tabernacle. We come into the new covenant realities and find the enjoyment of prayer is enlarged to Christ-sized dimensions. It's more enjoyable, not less. There are times when when prayer is battle, prayer is warfare. There are times when Prayer has a burden element to it. We're identifying with crises, with difficulties in the world, and it's it's difficult to avoid that in the chaos we're living in in the world today. But whether it's battle or burden, it's never meant to diminish the element of joy in our prayer experience. But what is the core of an enjoyable prayer life? What is the core of an enjoyable prayer life? How many of you enjoy getting answers to prayer? Just a few. (laughs) Is it right to celebrate answers? Of course it is. I I love the picture in Psalm 21 where you see David spinning around, ecstatically happy says the kings referring to himself, rejoices. And the word literally means I'm just spinning around with excitement. Why? Because you, Lord, have given me the desire of my heart and not withheld the request of my lips. And in fact, God has chosen it as part of his way of filling up our joy tank. John 14. John sixteen twenty four. 24, it says, ask and you will receive so that... Your joy will be complete. So, God enjoys giving answers to prayer. And we're meant to celebrate the answers. But just stretch your imagination a bit now. Imagine God announced at midnight tonight he would no longer be in the work of answering prayer, he would no longer be in the business of answering prayers. Would you still pray? Would you? You're not going to get an answer. Would you still pray? In other words, is there more to enjoyable prayer than getting answers? If getting answers to prayer was the core of our prayer life, joy then our prayer life joy would be something like that, because sometimes we get answers, sometimes we don't, and very often we get answers that are not the ones we were hoping for. There's an element of mystery to prayer that we won't be able to figure out. There are many times we pray and we persist, and we know we're asking something that's good in God's eyes, but no answer comes. Yes? Yes? And there's an element of mystery where we're thrown back into trust and say, Lord, I don't understand it, but I trust in your nature. You're good. You're kind. You are hearing me. But I don't get to celebrate an answer in this. Not yet, anyway. There's something beyond the celebration of answers that is the core of enjoyable prayer. What about asking that leads to the answers? Is there enjoyment in the asking that leads to the answers? I'm going to read a few verses in Psalm 2. From Psalm 2, verses 1 to 8. Why do the nations conspire and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up. Today I've become your father. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. It's an interesting psalm because it has two levels to it. The first level is King David singing of his own experience. He chased the Jebusites out of Jerusalem, made it his capital city, And then he had nations coming against him and he's singing of his own experience where rulers and nations set themselves against him as king. But there is another deeper level to this psalm. It's a prophetic psalm as David sings of the experience of the Messiah who was still to come down the line in history. And this, you remember that prayer meeting in, in Jerusalem, the apostles and the believers got together in Acts 4 and God enjoyed it so much he shook the place. This is the bit they were praying from because they were experiencing threats from rulers and they actually took this psalm that applied to David, but applied also to the Messiah. And they saw him crucified by rulers. And they mentioned the name of two rulers, Herod and Pilate. And they prayed from this psalm. And so there's this prophetic picture as David the psalmist is singing of the Messiah to come and the kind of conspiracy by rulers to put him on the cross. And what is the father's response? What is the Father's response in verses 4 and 5? Yes. What does the Father do? It says the Father laughs. The Father laughs. Folk, I have absolutely no idea what the laughter of God sounds like. I'm sure we've all heard people that have that... Laugh that seems to come from deep within the belly and when they laugh it's so contagious everyone laughs with them. And when I imagine God, I don't believe it's a metaphor when it says God laughs anymore that it's a metaphor when it says in the next verse he's angry. He was really angry and he was really laughing. And what that sounds like I have no idea. I do know the laughter of God must be the purest, loudest, loudest most contagious, beautiful sound you can imagine. A pure expression of perfect joy. And that's what God does about this conspiracy to put his son, the Messiah, on the cross. And the reason is because he knows what comes next. He wrote the script. He knows that after that comes the resurrection. And And then listen to what happens now in the next verse, verse 7. You have the psalmist who is singing this song, changes the voice. He says, I will proclaim the Lord's decree. Now, before that, it was the psalmist singing as the voice of the Father. Now he sings as the voice of the Messiah, the Son. And it is the voice of Christ singing now. He says, I will proclaim the Lord's decree. It's a decree that was made concerning the resurrection before time. It's going to happen. He says, I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, the Father said to the Son, He said to me, I have become, you are my son, today I've become your father. And that scripture is not a reference to the birth of Jesus, but the resurrection of Jesus. Romans chapter 1 verse 4, Paul picks up on that. Where the resurrection of Jesus was the father's clearest declaration to earth about the identity of his son, Jesus Christ. He declared him to be his son through the resurrection. And Satan tried his worst to crush the life of the Son of God. And all he did was prepare the stage for the Son's most brilliant triumph. From the death to resurrection. And the Father is laughing. The thunder of the Father's laughter as the psalmist is singing, anticipating the triumph of Jesus Christ through the resurrection. And the father laughs, and then verse eight. And this is a kind of a climax. It's it's leading into this verse eight, where the father's voice takes over again through the psalmist, and he says, "Ask of me." The father is saying to the son now. Remember, the anticipation was the son going to the cross, and then this triumphant resurrection three days later. And then the Father says to the Son in the song, ask of me. This is post-resurrection. Ask of me. And I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. And the Father hands the asking rights to Jesus, the Son. And the Son begins his high priestly ministry. Ascended Enthroned in glory, and he begins his high priestly ministry. And it's to the background noise of the father's laughter. So the father can't think of the son, can't see the son without replaying the wonderful triumph at Calvary and the resurrection. But here's where we come into the picture. Jesus raised into the position as high priest with asking rights. He chooses to not exercise them by himself, but to share them with his bride. And so we are drawn into Christ. And he immediately places over us a garment of righteousness, and he draws us into his order of priesthood. He is the high priest, and we have become a kingdom of priests under him. And he shares his asking rights with us, as long as we do the asking in his name. And then he places his very own spirit into us, Galatians 4. The Spirit of the enthroned Jesus, the High Priest, has come to live in us and releases in every single believer the very first word of authoritative prayer, Abba, Father. And we're on our way. We're on our way, sharing in the authority, the asking rights of Jesus Christ, as long as we do the asking in His name. Do you know there's an entire bunch of works that the Father withheld from Jesus when he lived and ministered on earth? Because they were reserved to be done when Jesus would do them together with his bride. And in John 1412 to 14, Jesus spoke of that to his disciples. And he said, you know the works you saw me do? You're going to do those works as well. Anyone who believes in me, the works I did, he will do as well. But then he said something else. He said, greater works than these. Greater works than anything you've seen, you will do. And here's how it works. You will ask me for anything. And I will do it, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. So these greater works are going to happen on earth as you use your asking rights in my name. And the Father's going to have glory through it. Every time we use our asking right, people, every time, no matter what we're asking for, we may be asking for help in an exam, help in the workplace. We may be asking for God to heal our neighbor's sick child. We may be asking for God to intervene in an international crisis or for a mission advance in the front line. We may be asking for anything. But whenever we're asking, we're actually asking for the kingdom of God to come on earth. We're asking for Jesus to display the reality of the fact that he is the king and he is here ruling. And he is extending his kingdom. We're asking him to display the power and authority of him as king. Let your kingdom come. And every time we ask, we're doing it to the background noise of the father's laughter when we use our asking rights in Jesus' name, we are entering into the Father's celebration of His Son's triumph. If it wasn't for His Son's triumph, we wouldn't have asking rights. We wouldn't have a mission of hope and freedom. We have it all because of the Son's triumph, and the Father celebrates the Son's triumph constantly, and we are drawn into that celebration of His triumph every time we use our asking rights. Is there joy in asking? Absolutely. And there's joy in the answers that come from the asking. But we still haven't reached the core of enjoyable prayer. The core of enjoyable prayer is deeper than the joy of asking that leads to the joy of answers. So where is the core of enjoyable prayer? When Jesus died on the cross... We, we really have very little idea, don't we, on really what happened of the size of judgment. When an eternity of judgment because of holiness violated An eternity of judgment meant for us rushed in on Jesus Christ. And the hand of God struck down His Son with an eternal judgment. I don't really know what that must have been like. I know it was a display of love. I also know it was the most violent day in all of earth's history. And at the moment that the hand of God came down and struck down the son and took his life, at that same moment, the finger of God took hold of the veil in the temple and ripped it in two. And it's like God was saying, this is for that. And we have the message of the book of, of Hebrews, that by the death, through the blood of Christ, a new and a living way has been opened up. There's no longer a veil and there's no longer any reason for anyone to live distant from the face of God. A new and living way has been opened up. And so we read in Hebrews chapter 4 in verse 16 about prayer. Let us then come confidently to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. Isn't that great? God loves to help us. It's His nature. He loves to help, but he wants us to come and ask for help in our times of need. But here's the thing we can't forget, and we mustn't overlook this, that as we're coming to God to ask for help, we are in fact coming to a throne. It's a throne of grace, a throne of mercy, but nevertheless a throne. The access rights that have come through the life given up of Jesus Christ have brought us right to the throne. And when we pray, we are addressing enthroned glory. And the main point of God opening access for us to the throne is not for our requests, but for our responses. It's not firstly about our asking, it's firstly about our admiration of him. And whenever our asking weighs heavier than the admiration, we've lost sight of the glory of the enthroned one, the kind of God he is. We had a stretch of imagination a bit earlier, imagining that God was going to no longer answer prayers. Here's another stretch of imagination. Imagine yourself going on a half hour visit to heaven. The throne room. Think you'd enjoy that? Could you cope? And you're drawn into the sights and sounds of Revelation 4 and 5 enthroned beauty, colors that go way beyond the color spectrum we're used to seeing in our black and white life down here, beauty beyond description, the energy of God's presence, thunder and lightning flashes, the four living creatures and their constant holy holy, holy, as they keep on capturing fresh insights into the beauty of God's holiness. There's no sameness in that refrain, this constant newness, fresh revelations of just how holy he is. The 24 elders on their faces and up and on their faces... The sounds of the angels just focused on the throne, constant worship, constant praise. And and you're drawn into that. And, And if you're not turned completely to jelly and you can still move, you edge your way forward to that throne and you grab that list of requests, five or six requests, and you want to hand it to him say, would you please do these things for us? I don't think so. I think that will be the last thing in our minds. I think the first thing in our minds would just be drawn into the wonder and awe and constant praise of the Enthroned One because He is so worthy. Here's the thing. God with us, this amazing New Covenant miracle is The same presence in the throne room has become the presence with us in the spaces of our daily living now. The place is different, but the presence is the same. And when we pray, we are before the throne of the glorious one. And the first thing is to admire him generously. Just admire him because he is so worthy. This is the eternal aspect of our priesthood that Christ has brought us into. You see, there will come a time when every asking will fall away. There will no longer be needs and crises. There will no longer be sick people to pray about. There will no longer be unreached nations to pray into. There will be nothing to ask God for. That will have passed. The new order will have come. But this aspect of our priesthood will never end. Admiration of him will go on forever and ever and ever. It's at the heart of us being who we are as family of God and as his priests. And that's where the core of prayer joy lies. Prayer joy is the enjoyment of God himself. Yes, there is joy in the answers he gives. Yes, there is joy in the asking that leads to the answers. But the core of prayer joy is our enjoyment of Him. And we learn how to enjoy Him by making time to admire Him. I find it helpful in my own life to, when there's a need when there's a crisis, when there's a situation that I want to ask him for help in, before I step into asking, ask myself, what is it about this need, this situation, that shows me something about the kind of God he is? Connect the need to the glory of God. By glory we mean the kind of God he is, the beauty of God. Allow that need, that situation, to open up some aspect of the nature of God, the kind of God he is, and then spend time admiring that aspect of him. And then when we do go into our asking, our asking is clothed with an admiration of him, which actually helps us to pray from rest rather than in reaction to situations. And so it makes our praying a little bit more accurate. The other thing I find helpful is in reading the scriptures, to keep trying to train myself to read the scriptures as a prayer, not primarily to get a devotional injection of encouragement, which is good, or to find a sermon, a teaching, which is also good, or to simply acquire some more biblical knowledge, which is not bad, but to read it as a prayer and see what has the speaker put there, to feed my responses to him. <clears throat> In prayer, he's always the first speaker and we are the responding speakers. So as we read the scriptures, what has the speaker placed there? And particularly, what has he placed there concerning himself? So that we can pray prayers of admiration to him. In a few minutes, Ryan's going to be taking us to a psalm. Now, Psalm, psalm 100, verse 5, it, it's very clear. There are three things about the nature of God in that, in that one verse. God is love, he is good, and he is faithful. And it's very easy to pray prayers of admiration from that verse. But there are some verses that, where it's not so clear. It's not so apparent. The first verse of that psalm says, Shout to the Lord all the earth. It's not that apparent, what aspect of the nature of God am I seeing in that verse to admire? But if we don't just rush through the reading, but spend time seeing what the speaker has put there for us to admire him in, there will be something. And we will see just how vast he is as king. That he is king enthroned over absolutely the entire earth. And that he is worthy that all nations throughout the entire earth, be drawn into offering Him worship and spend time admiring His size. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. This